Yeah, yeah. What's up, Flatiron Tower? We... Hey, you guys are awake this morning. Is it because it's game day or what? Yeah. Hey, uh, let's all just pray that Von Miller gives Tom Brady an early Christmas present today. How about that? How about that? Hey, um, it is almost Christmas time, and with that, there's a couple announcements I have for you. One is this, in case you didn't notice out in the lobby today, um, we still have Afghanistan hats and beads from Musana and uh, our Bob, Bob, and Ann video and all that kind of stuff out there for sale. Make great gifts. Again, none of that money like comes to us. All that goes to um, organizations we're partnered with, such as Sozo and Musana. And if you're new here, you just walked in, you have no idea what that is, just ask the people around you or the people you came with. They'll be able to explain it to you because we talk about it all the time. If you came by yourself and you want to know the answer, or just go out there to the lobby and ask the people at the table. They would love to tell you all about where the money for that's going and how we're partnered up with people around the world. The other thing is this. On Christmas Eve, we have a whole bunch of services, all right? We got a service at 1, 3, 5, and 7. We don't have services on Christmas Day. We don't have services the following weekend. So what we need is we need a few more people. We filled up almost every volunteer spot, except we need a bunch more people to serve at the 7 p.m. service in our kids' ministry. So if you would go out there to the lobby today before you leave, um, over there on your left as you're heading out that direction you will see a, a kids ministry uh, kiosk you can sign up to serve there we just need lots and lots of help at that service we don't know how many kids are going to come to which services and all that kind of stuff so we just need to make sure we have good coverage to keep everybody safe and sane on Christmas Eve all right so make sure you help us out with that hey as I've been thinking about Christmas I've been kind of doing what we do at Christmas we kind of reminisce and we think back and we have memories for good or for bad we have memories of Christmas and one of my memories of Christmas is that uh, when I was a real little kid I remember my mom uh, and I would make Christmas cookies together, all right? And so what she would do is she would roll out uh, the dough and she would give me a cookie cutter. She would give me, you know, like it would be like a star or candy cane or, you know, a Santa or an elf or something like that. And my job was always to take this thing and to make the cookies and, and press down and just do this repeatedly over and over and over and again. And it's a pretty low risk deal. It's a pretty low risk endeavor for like a four-year-old to do. You can't mess it up too bad. And so that was my job. That's what I got to do. And so my job was to take this big lump of dough and conform it to where every cookie looked exactly the same. And that's what the cookie cutter does. It creates a pattern and it allows you to repeat the process until everything is conformed to look exactly the same. And I was thinking about that the other day and I was thinking about us. And I was thinking about how that's exactly what happens to people. That's exactly what happens to us. We see things, we hear things, we experience things, we witness things, we participate in things, and all of those things shape us. They conform us. They, they lead us to looking a certain way, thinking a certain way, talking a certain way, acting a certain way. And conformity is what naturally happens to people within a given culture. It just happens, okay? In case you don't think that happens, all you have to do is leave your culture, go to someone else's culture, and you'll be impressed by the, by the fact that they all seem to have the same mindset. They all seem to have the same mannerisms. They have similar values. They act the same. They dress the same. They even look the same. And, and here's the thing. When people from other countries and other cultures come over here they say the same thing about us just so you know they think we all look alike all right we would like to think that we're non-conformist but at the end of the day we are and here, here's the funny thing when I was a, a student ministries pastor when I worked with high school students it was funny because the kids that thought they were the biggest non-conformists all looked alike they all looked the same, dressed the same, acted the same. They were like a herd that just traveled together, and that's, that's what they did. And we all like to think that we're different, and we're not like that, and we're not being conformed, but here's the truth. Unless we do something about it, 
we are going to continue to be shaped and conformed to look like the people around us. We follow the pattern of our culture and we're conformed. Now, every now and then someone does as we say, how do we say it? They break the mold, right? Someone breaks the mold, they see the world differently, they think differently, they act differently, they see things from a different perspective, and inevitably, whenever somebody does this, whenever somebody kind of raises above or puts their, their head above the crowd, what happens? It inevitably costs them something, doesn't it? Oftentimes, it costs them their very life. A couple examples come to mind. Martin Luther King Jr. would be a great one. Right? Not only did he think differently in regards to the way minorities should be treated, but he thought differently about how to fight for civil rights and what did it ultimately cost him? His life. The easiest example would be Jesus, right? He literally broke the mold. He was different. He was unique. And what he said and what he did was so against the grain and so countercultural that within three and a half short years of ministry, what? It cost him his life. You see, this is just my opinion, but I think one of the biggest lies perpetuated in our world is that our world values diversity. You drive right down South Boulder Road, you pass Centaurus High School on your left, you'll see a big sign that says diversity. But I think our world tends to punish those who break the mold. Those who see the world differently, think differently, and act differently. Which, of course, increases the pressure to simply go with the flow, right? To be conformed, because it's safer that way. Just fall in line, toe the company line, don't shake, don't shake things up, keep your head down, cash your paycheck, and go about your business. See, this is one of the things I love about being a follower of Jesus, because if there was ever a faith that values diversity, that values thinking differently, that values acting different, that values being different at a foundational level, it would be Christianity, it would be following Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you've got your Bibles or your programs, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to, once again, as we've been for the past several months, in the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 again. If you remember last week, Jim looked at one verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to look at that again, and then we're going to tack on one more verse. We're going to look at verse 2 today, and we'll kind of see where that leads us. All right, so check this out. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So that word therefore we talked about last week is very significant because it means this. Okay, in light of everything else that I've already said, which is basically Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 11. All right, which could be summed up this way. We've been learning these things, that we're justified by faith, not by our works, that our sins are forgiven through Jesus based on what he did for us on the cross and him raising it from the dead. God works all things for the good of those who love him. And here's one that, that we've been learning. God moves towards us before we're even capable of moving towards him. That's Romans chapter one through 11 in a few sentences. And what Paul is saying is, therefore, in light of those magnificent truths, Express your worship to God by giving him all of you. Your very, remember this word, presence. Your presence. And Jim left off last week asking some really good questions like, does God have you? We spent a lot of time asking questions like, do you have God in your life? A better question is, does God have you? And the question I want to look at today is, okay, how do you do that? How do you go about offering your, your body as a living sacrifice? How do you go about giving your presence to God? Where do you start? Where do you begin? And thankfully, that's what Paul talks about next in verse 2. So check this out. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
So immediately, here's what Paul does. He gives, us some, he gives us a couple categories. Here's some things not to do. Here's some things to do. And he immediately goes, don't do this. He says, do not conform any longer. I love that. Don't conform. Uh, that word conform literally means to be fashioned alike. In other words, to be shaped like everyone else. He's saying, don't give in to the pressure to be the same. Do not simply and mindlessly just fall in line. Don't passively allow things that you see and hear and experience to shape you. So let me ask you a question in here today. If, if you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you honest and be honest with yourself. Is this really what we're known for? Maybe it'd be better for me to ask the people in the room who are not followers of Jesus. You're just kind of checking this whole thing out. Let me ask you, is this really what we're known for? Are followers of Jesus really known for being nonconformists? Are, are we recognized as people who do not conform? Do we really look different than anyone else? The way we think, the way we act, the way we treat people, or are we simply the same as everyone else? Have we fallen in line? See, the reason Paul says do not conform any longer, the reason he says that any longer part is because he knows the people that he's writing to have been being conformed. How does he know that? Because they're people. They're people who live in a culture. In fact, they live in the cultural epicenter of the world at the time, which was Rome. And people living in a culture naturally become conformed to the thoughts and values and behaviors of that culture. That's what happens. So it's important for us to know what we're being told not to conform to, which is what he says next. Look, put it all together. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That word pattern literally means constant sameness. It's a cookie cutter. Over and over again, everybody looks the same. He says, don't be like that. Don't be conformed to look like that. Don't allow that to happen to you. Don't allow the pattern of this world. And world here means literally, don't let the way of thinking that's currently going on in this present age, don't let the thoughts and values, the way of seeing things that's currently prevalent in your culture prevail in your heart and in your mind and in your life. Don't just simply believe what you hear. Don't simply believe what you're handed. Don't simply just follow everything that you're taught. Remember last week, Jim, Jim mentioned this verse, and he and I mentioned this verse like at least once a month around here. James chapter 1, verse 27. Worship that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Right? We talk about that all the time. I want to key on that last phrase just for a second, that keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Because it gets misrepresented all the time. What it literally means is this. Don't get caught up in a system that ignores those who need the most help. Don't buy into the values of your current age. Listen to this next statement, because I think this is really important. So like write it down or something, all right? If you don't have a pen, like scratch it on your arm or on your neighbor's neck or something. I don't know. Just write it down. It's really important, all right? Just because it's current does not mean it's accurate. Does that make sense? Just because it's recent does not make it true. Just because we've progressed in some things does not mean we've progressed in all things. We have this tendency to buy into the idea because it's the newest idea, it must be a right idea. You know what C.S. Lewis called that? Chronological arrogance. Because it's recent, because it's new, it must be better than what was once believed before. Not true. So here's the question. What are some of those current values and patterns that are being impressed upon you and being impressed upon me? 
What are those things that if we just passively sit back like a lump of dough, we will begin to be shaped in the image of these values? What are some of those things? And we could talk about this all morning. Like I could go on all day about this, but here's just a few things that were right off the top of my head as I was kind of preparing this week. And, and the first one I'm gonna give you is a foreshadowing of the teaching that Jim and I are gonna kind of unleash in the new year. And I'll be really, really honest with you. I always look forward to what we're gonna teach around here. I could not look forward more to what we're gonna teach in the new year. You gotta be around here. I think it's gonna be really, really helpful. So let me ask this question. Have you noticed something about men on television in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years? Have you noticed something consistent about the way men are represented on TV in the past 20 years? I have. They're all idiots, all right? I don't know if you've noticed that or not, they're all idiots. Men are painted on television in all, if not, at least some, if not all of the following ways. Dumb, passive, irresponsible, goofy, childish, unable to lead anything, and sexually irresponsible. And I'm serious, if you just kind of flip the channels, you may find a few exceptions, I don't know, but if you just kind of peruse the channels of any given kind of show or sitcom, that's what you're going to see. You'd be hard-pressed to find an example on a network television show of, I don't know, a good dad, a faithful husband, a guy who's like, I don't know, a leader in his community and in his home. Why? Well, because that doesn't make good television. But the value that's being communicated in our culture is simply this. Men are a joke. That's what's being communicated. They're good for a laugh, but they're not good as leaders. And we're going to explore how that's not the case in the new year. How about this? What about marriage? I mean, not only is the definition of marriage up for grabs and debate, but the importance of it as well. I saw on the news the other night, we're about to hit an unprecedented time in our nation's history. Now we're, we're at the first time at an all-time low, 51% of adults are currently married in our country. We're soon going to be, unless something changes, under 50% for the first time ever. 93% of us will get married at some point in our life, which says this. A lot of us are buying into the idea that marriage is not a permanent covenant between one man and one woman under God. We're buying in. What about women? See, I, I would say it's impossible to, with a straight face, say that we live in a culture that honors and treasures women. You may go, oh no, that's not true, Scott. We've progressed. Really? No, you can't say that. Why? Well, because this culture spends more annually on pornography than the four major television networks make annually. You know what pornography is by definition? It, it objectifies, demeans, and dehumanizes women. Is that progress? No. What about children? I think it was a pastor named Andy Stanley who said it well the first time I ever heard it. He said this. He said, we're raising a generation of kids that are experience rich but relationally poor. In other words, we're buying into this idea that what kids need most from us is to move them and shuttle them from one activity to the next, to play on as many teams as possible, to experience to experience, camp to camp, lesson to lesson at the expense of a real relationship with us as their parents. And one of the things I've noticed is my older two children have moved into this stage now where we are, man, we're taking them all over the place. They got, they got lessons and they got teams and they got things that they're on. One of the things I've known, noticed most is that it doesn't matter so much what they're doing, but the real game changer is, here's that word again, my presence in what they're doing. If I'm there, 
it changes everything. And I'll be really honest with you, my son Eli, he loves his wrestling tournaments, but you know what he loves even more? When I come home from work and we go downstairs in the basement and he and I wrestle. He loves that even more. And I could go on all day and get on all kinds of soapboxes. You know me well enough by now to know I can do that. You're like, yeah, he'll do it. He will. Paul's point is really, really simple. Do not conform to this. Don't be conformed to this. Don't just passively sit back like a lump of dough and be shaped by this kind of thinking. And now he moves out of the category of don't do that to do this. He says, how about this? But be transformed. Be transformed. He's laying another option on the table. He says, how about instead of just sitting back and being conformed, what if you were, I don't know, transformed? And in the Greek, that's the word metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis from, which literally means a radical change of form. I mean, picture that. Think about that. What could be more radical than a caterpillar, right? Fat, ugly, slow thing that crawls at about a half a mile per hour, right? Being transformed into something beautiful that can fly. That's what Paul's proposing. He's saying, how about instead of this bland, ugly pattern, this constant sameness that you'll absolutely remain in, how about becoming someone new, something new, something altogether different, something beautiful, something that rises above, something that stands out, something that's eye-catching, you know, there's a, there's a butterfly pavilion over in, in Broomfield. There's not a caterpillar pavilion anywhere, all right, that I, that I know of. I guess technically the butterfly pavilion is, but they don't advertise the caterpillar part. Why? Because caterpillars aren't interesting. Butterflies are. So Paul says, hey, how about this? How about being transformed as a better option? And now the question becomes, yeah, that sounds great. How? How would I go about doing that? How do I go about being transformed? And Paul says in the next phrase, by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. And I, I, I love that phrase. I love it. You know why? Because it literally means this. Think. Think. Use your head. Use your brain. Think critically. Think differently. Change your mind. Fundamentally, the idea here is this old religious word that, that's very, very important. It's to repent. Think differently. Turn away from sin and turn towards God. God, I once believed this about you. Now I believe this. I once believed this about myself. Now I believe this. And because of what I believe, I'm now going to move in this new direction. I once thought about this, and now I think this. Another way the Bible talks about this is to take captive every thought. In other words, you identify the thoughts that come into your life and run them through a filter. Is this right and is this true? And if it's not, then you take it captive. You get rid of it. See, I think one of the worst things about the way Christians are perceived currently in the world today is we're looked at as people who have turned our brains off. And it didn't used to be that way. Not even that long ago, it didn't used to be that way. It seemed like the best art, the best music, the best leaders always came out of the Christian community. Christians used to be cultural architects. Now we're looked at as cultural separatists. And we're seen as people who don't think, we just naively believe. Yet Paul is saying here, think. Think about what you see. Think about what you hear. Think about what you experience. Think about what you're told. And don't just believe it because you hear it or see it. Think. See, I think Christians should be known as the most thoughtful human beings on the planet. Christians should be thinking about everything, but far too often, we just have to admit this, guys, far too often we're just lazy and we settle for shortcuts and we'll actually exchange thinking for religion. 
And what I mean is this. Religion fundamentally at its base level is simply a list of things to do and not to do. And you don't even have to think about it. Just give me the list. Just give me the list. Just tell me what not to do. Tell me what to do. So I don't even have to think about it. And we settle. So, so let me give you an example of that. If you ever went to a Christian bookstore back in the 80s and the 90s, I don't know if this is still true today. I worked at one back in the 90s. But if you went to a Christian bookstore back then, uh, they also sold Chris, Christian music in Christian bookstores. And so when you walked in, you could inevitably, somewhere on the wall, you would find this chart, okay? And the chart on it had... One category over here, another category over here. This category over here was a list of secular artists, music artists, which is translation for devil worship music, all right? And so there'd be a big list over here. And then on the other side of the list was a list of Christian artists, translation not good enough to make it as mainstream artists. And so (laughs) don't write me an email, all right? So... So there'd be over here, and so the idea was you, you as a parent, if your kid was listening to devil worship music, you go, okay, so back in the 80s, you'd be like, all right, my kid listens to Motley Crue, and so there would be a suggestion for comparable Christian music that your kid would probably enjoy, and so the recommendation would be like, all right, your kid likes Motley Crue, he'll love Petra, all right? And so what would happen is, is Christian parents would buy cassette tapes. We had these things called cassette tapes. They were weird. You had to plug them in, hit play. You could dub. It was great. It was awesome. And so um, anyway, you get this cassette tape. You would bring it home to your kid. And your kid who loved Motley Crue would hit play and listen for a minute and immediately look at their mom and dad and go, this is terrible. This is not the same, okay? And so what they would do is every genre of music, they would have a comparison. The problem was there was only like four main Christian artists. And so if your kid like rapped like, like, like Tupac or something like that, they'd go, your mom would bring home DC talk. You know, it was like, mom, this is, this is terrible, okay? And so fundamentally, what was going on there? What was the point of the chart? What was the point? It was a shortcut. It was a shortcut to actually thinking, Don't think about the music you're listening to. Just here's the list. Don't listen to them. Make sure you listen to them. And the problem with that is simply this. That's called turning off your brain. And what's wrong with that? Everything, according to the Bible. It's not consistent with being a follower of Jesus to turn off your brain. So here's what happened. A bunch of church kids grew up listening to Christian music without ever engaging their minds. And in some cases, they actually believed things that weren't true about God because they were sung by Christian artists. And what Paul is saying is this, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't turn your brain off and embrace legalism and religion because it's easier than actually thinking. I'll give you another example. My wife uh, grew up going to this small Christian school, the same one that I got kicked out of. I've told you about that before. And one of the things that was amazing about this school was they had rules for everything. They had rules for everything. You, You didn't have to think about anything. You didn't have to think about what you wore, you didn't have to think about what you said, you didn't have to think about what you did, you didn't have to think about what you listened to, you didn't have to think about anything. And so Allie and I watched over the course of a three, four year period of time as people graduated from this school, it was unbelievable. When they graduated high school and went off to college, do you know what a lot of them did? Everything. Why? Because all of a sudden they had this really weird thing in front of them called a choice. And they were not equipped to make a wise one. They weren't. So they just went crazy for a while. They had turned their brains off and their brains had never been engaged in actually following Jesus because they'd been taught to be religious. See, Paul would say this. I think this is true. Paul would say, hey, listen to good music. 
Listen to good music and recognize things that are true and untrue, whether they come out of the mouth of a Christian or not, because all truth at a fundamental level is God's truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what would be the benefit of all this, right? Let's just boil it down. What would be the benefit if I started to think different by the renewing of my mind? What if I was transformed? What would be the benefit of all that? Look at what Paul says next. He says this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Anybody here today interested in God's will for your life? Anybody? Wow, more of you than last night. Last night they were all here for the coffee apparently, all right? (laughs) Yeah, that's probably why most of us are here, right? See, to test and approve means literally to put something to the fire and see what comes out the other side, to see if it stands up under the heat. That's a good benefit. That's what we're all so interested in. I mean, the number one question that I get asked as a pastor after people ask me, are you sure it's not okay if I sleep with my girlfriend? After that question gets out of the way, the number one question that gets asked to me is simply this, how do I know God's will for my life? Got this decision in front of me, I wanna know what to do. How do I know? And Paul, did you see? He's giving us the answer. He's giving us the answer. And it's not some mystical, ask God to write stuff on the wall for you. It's not demanding that God give you a sign. It's not sitting and waiting for a warm, fuzzy feeling. He says, think differently so that you'll be able to test and approve God's will. In other words, if you'll do that, you'll have what's called a biblical worldview and you'll be able to make decisions based on this biblical filter. So when decisions come, you engage your brain based on what you know to be true about God and what God has already revealed and what God has already said you make a wise decision. Now, how would I go about knowing things about God and how would I know, go about knowing what he's revealed and what he said? Some of you are a step ahead because you've heard me before and you're going, I think he's gonna say we should read our Bible. Yes. That's what I, I know I always say it. I know it's my soapbox, but it's important and it's just true. The Bible. I have people come to me so often with the decision in front of them and they're struggling because they don't know what to do. And often, to be really honest with you, I suspect what people are wanting me to do is just give me the answer. You're the pastor, give me the answer. You've read the Bible, give me the shortcut. At the end of the day, it's easier to, if it blows up in your face, you can blame me for it then, right? So... When we have decisions in front of us, we have to think, and we have to think in categories, all right? So let me give you some categories for decision-making, okay? Two really big, broad ones. The first one is this. There are moral issues. Things where God has said, listen, I'm taking this one off the table. Don't don't do this because I love you and I want to protect you, so don't do this and make sure you do this. I'll give you an example, all right? I had a a guy come up to me um, a while back. He's a professed follower of Jesus, and he was kind of excited, and he came up to me, and he said, hey, Scott, I started started dating this girl. I started seeing this girl. There's a lot of chemistry involved there, and it's a really, really good thing. And I'm going, awesome. Is there a a question in there or something? He's like, yeah, there's just one small problem. She's married. Is that a big deal? (laughs) Listen, (laughs) you'll know if I'm about to get violent because I can't hide it, all right? I have these veins that pop out over here and my ears get bright red, all right? And I could feel, I could feel the veins like pulsing and I could feel my ears getting hot. And in that moment I went, yeah, there's a problem. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. Yeah, there's a problem. He goes, oh, oh, oh okay, well, what's your advice? I said, here's my advice. 
How about you don't do that? How about you don't steal another man's wife? How about you don't break up somebody's family? And how about you stop being selfish? Let's start there, all right? Here's what I'm saying. You don't have to pray about that. Do you understand, all right? You, you, you don't, dear God, should I steal that man's wife? No, I, I don't recommend if you're planning on robbing a bank to ask God to bless your efforts either, all right? That's, he's not going to get behind something he's explicitly already commanded all of us not to do. And so often we like to go, but wait a second, here's my situation, right? I get the hall pass, don't I? Do, do you think God has never seen your situation before? The, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, None of us are that creative that we can sin in a whole new way that he's never seen before. He thought it through before he made the rule, okay? So if we'll pay attention and actually read what God has commanded us to do, then all of a sudden it doesn't become discovering God's will, it becomes paying attention to God's will. That's one issue, all right? That's pretty black and white and cut and dry. But there is another category, there is another realm, and it's not near as black and white, not near as cut and dry. It's not moral issues, it's wisdom issues, right? Every decision is not based on what's right and wrong. Sometimes decisions are based on just what's wise. Often it's a career choice or do I want to move to that place or go to that place or go to that school or go back to work or whatever that looks like. And to be really honest with you, the answer is sometimes really, really simple. And you got to listen to everything I'm about to say because if you only listen to the first part, you'll go do a bunch of bad stuff. So please don't do that. All right. Here's the answer sometimes. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Let me qualify that by saying this. Psalm 37.4 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, when God's priority number one, when your heart's aligned with him and your ultimate priority is bringing glory and honor to him, then God gives you, not every wish you have, he gives you new desires. He creates desires in you and when he does that, you can trust those desires. So I don't know if you're picking up on this yet, but decision-making has to become this really involved thing. You have to start asking really good questions, things like, does this decision violate any of God's commands, yes or no? Then you have to ask questions like this, okay, if it doesn't violate any of God's commands, then is it wise? Which leads to other questions like this, based on my past experience and based on my future hopes and dreams, would this be a wise decision? And then you ask questions like this, am I equipped and am I gifted to do this? Am I capable? Am I qualified? And then you ask questions like this, how will this decision, if I make it, impact those that I love most? And then you know what you do after you run it through a bunch of filters like that? Something. You you do something. Far too often Christians just sit paralyzed, not doing anything because they're waiting on God to reveal his will for their life. All the while God has gone, I've revealed it, y'all. It's right there. Use your brain and you act. Paul says it this way in a, a letter called Colossians. He says it twice in the course of a few verses as if we really need to hear it a couple times. He says this, and whatever you do, it's a big whatever, whatever you do. Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A couple verses later, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. God gave us brains and he expects us to use them. 
God expects us to think and think differently and to act and to move and to do something. And whatever we do, to do it for him, whether you're a football player, a banker, a school teacher, a student, or a coach, do it differently. Don't conform to the way everyone else does it. Be radically different. Rise above the same old, same old pattern of this world. Now, let me ask you a question. Boil it all down. How would this change the way we do Christmas this year and the years coming up? How should this impact the way that we as followers of Jesus do Christmas? And I think there's two dangers for us as Christians. We can fall off of one cliff or the other when it comes to Christmas. And the first one is to to fall off this cliff and believe that Christmas is all about prosperity. What I mean is this, to simply just totally be conformed to the spending frenzy and mindlessly buy things for people they don't need, won't use, and didn't ask for. Simply because, I don't know, it's what you do, it's Christmas. I would say this, and again, this is just my opinion, but I would say giving meaningless gifts out of obligation is far worse than giving no gift at all. And that's one cliff to fall off of. Here's another one that's easy to fall off of as well. And it usually comes from swinging on a pendulum and reacting to what we see going on in the culture. And I think I've done this and I'm trying to kind of come back to the center on this, but, but it's believing that imitating poverty is more spiritual and makes you a better person. What I mean when I say I think I've fallen off that cliff before is this. Several years ago, I was sitting around a Christmas day, a big group of family members, big Christmas tree, tons of presents. Everybody's opening up their presents, just going wild, opening up their presents. And as, as the morning went on and more and more people opened their presents, I had this overwhelming sense of guilt. As I'm watching people, all of us in the room who legitimately, to be really honest with you, none of us walked into that room that morning with a single need Not one. And thousands upon thousands of dollars were spent on people who didn't have a legitimate need. Not one. And I had this like crisis moment. And so I went back to my wife and sure enough, she was feeling the same way. And so we we reacted to that. And what we did was we wrote letters to all our family members and said, hey, we're not doing that ever again. From this point on here, you get a, a really low spending limit on each of us and our kids and all that kind of thing. And we would prefer instead of you buying us gifts, you buy goats for kids in Africa and stuff like that. And we gave them order forms and all that kind of stuff. And to be really honest with you, I think that's really good. And I think that was born out of a really good place. But there's one fundamental thing that I think I've been missing. And I'm again, trying to embrace this, this year and it's simply this it's something that's true about God when God sent his one and only son to die for you and me so that we didn't have to perish so that we could have eternal life do do you know what you call that a really good gift a really good and really significant gift and I think we should likewise imitate him by giving really good and really significant gifts to each other that doesn't mean we should spend without thinking or spend more than we have it just means that we should here it is thoughtfully give think if we would just think this Christmas that would be radically different than the world around us that just spends without thinking if we would give with those words in mind good and significant. What's a good and significant gift that I could give this Christmas? That would be radically different than the world around us. One author I read this week said it this way, the challenge is for us to think as Jesus thinks, approve what Jesus approves, and despise what Jesus despises. Well, Jesus doesn't despise anything. Yes, he does. Despises sin, despises religion, despises greed we go right on down the list but I think that's a really good outline and the best way for me to know those things that Jesus Jesus approves and despises and all that is for me to study his word 
I mean, think about it, all right? Think about what you already know to be true about Jesus. He was different. How do you know? Because you don't know the name of a single other Jewish carpenter from the Middle East from 2,000 years ago. Okay, one more, Joseph, his dad, right? How is it that when you Google Jesus, he's the most popular figure on the planet today? How did that happen? How did that work? Because he was radically different than any other person who's ever lived When he died on the cross and rose from the grave, that was radically different. He broke the mold and we're called to be like him, to stand out, to be different, to think different, to love different, and to act different. As we wrap up this morning, I I wanna read you on the way uh, an author named Eugene Peterson expresses these verses we've been studying the past two weeks because he expresses them really, really well. Listen to this, he says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life. Place it before God as an offering. See, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. How about that? How about we take our everyday, ordinary life, lay it before God, give him your very presence. And instead of being conformed into the image of everyone and everything around us, what if we were transformed into the image of Christ? We think different, We act different and everything changes. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge the fact that we often don't think. We often don't think correctly. We don't think correctly of each other. We don't think correctly of ourselves. We don't think correctly of you. And because of what's going on in our hearts and our minds, our actions are just all out of whack. And so, Father, we spend so much time trying to manage our actions and manage our sin when there's a deeper issue going on. And we we treat... We treat the symptoms and ignore the disease and you're the only one who can treat the disease and so God we invite you to change us from the inside out to do what only you can do and God we stand before you today saying we'll participate with you as you transform us and we'll engage our hearts and engage our minds so that we can honor and glorify your name through your son named Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.